there's a small island off the Californian coast called Catalina. It lies about 15, 16 miles off the coast. And on the 4th of July, 1951, a young woman called Florence Chadwick decided she was going to swim this. Now, the problem wasn't the distance of 15 or 16 miles. The problem was the cold, frigid waters of the Pacific, the strong current, and the sharks. <laughs> she was a brave woman, and she was doing so well for so long, until just about the time when she should be seeing land, she started getting doubts, because a big mist came down on the water, which is common off those, off those waters and she started to struggle. She was exhausted by then. The boats around her just disappeared in the mist. The nearest boat was her mom, and she was egging her on, saying, going on, you're so close, you're so close, Florence, go for it. And she just didn't. She was pulled out of the water, physically and emotionally exhausted. Now, no doubt Florence had trained hard for that crossing. No doubt she knew her own abilities, otherwise it would have been suicidal. And yet, she let doubts at the very last moment creep in, and they just spawned failure. Later, she said to a reporter, look, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could only have seen the land, she said, I might have made it. Poignant words. You see, she lost sight of her target. She let doubt creep in. And she failed. And just looking around this room today and looking into my own heart, I want to ask you, has that happened to you? Have you set off with a noble task in life or a goal? And you were doing so well for so long. And then just maybe it's just time you let doubt slip in. And then you ended up in a place where you said, man, I never saw this coming. I failed. All that time and energy and effort wasted. But let me ask you a question. What if you really knew at the onset of setting a task for yourself? What if you really knew that you'd be 100% successful? Would that change the attitude that you have towards the task? Would it make facing those barriers and those challenges any different? Peter thinks it does, and that's what we're looking at today. But before we examine the first verse here, verse 13, let's look at some of the verses that we read last week because they are marvelous. Throw your eyes back there to verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God of our Lord Christ, exclamation mark. You can get a feeling of what's going on in his heart. He's almost giddy here with praise and love and admiration. Blessed, he said, be the, Lord of our, be the God of our Lord Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through, listen to this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. What a promise. An inheritance is kept for those who follow and love Jesus that is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. And it's kept by who? By God himself. You know, we'd never give a million euros to a child, would we? What's the first thing a child would do with a bag of million euros? He'd probably throw it in the fire. He wouldn't realize the worth of it. He'd lose it in a second. And so it is with us. 
our salvation is kept for us. It's not dependent on our performance. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Peter says, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And listen to this. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter almost seems to be in the heavenlies already there, doesn't he? We can see that he's delighting in God's company and God's promises and in God's fellowship. And now in verse 13, he continues this train of thought. He says, therefore, because of all the wonderful things we've just read summarizing those two verses, Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And here's the first exhortation. Set your mind or set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is telling us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now some people in this room might not be familiar with the biblical meaning of the word hope. They might think it's a bit like when we say, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. Good luck with that. It's not that kind of wishy-washy hope. Hope biblically means a steady, constant, confident assurance in God's promises because it's based on God's character. It's a done deal. And Peter says, since our hope is sure that this inheritance is kept for it, we can bank on it. Commentator Edward Chowney puts it like this. He said, this hope, it's not so much an attitude to be cultivated as a reality to be recognized. We can't sort of do a team huddle like you see lads before a soccer match and say, come on now, let's work on our hope. We can do it. We can develop our hope. Let's, let's just hope harder and maybe we'll have more hope. That's not what Peter is saying at all. That's not what Chowney is saying. He's saying this hope, it's an attitude. It's not an attitude to be cultivated. It's a reality. It's something which is real, and it just has to be recognized. Well, how do we recognize it? Well, Peter starts off, he says, we recognize it with our minds. He says we prepare our minds. Now, when we, when, when we read preparing our minds, we mightn't see the full meaning of that. It's a Jewish idiom, which means we must gird up our loins. In other words, what, what Peter is saying here is we must gird up the loins of our minds. Now, that, that probably doesn't make any sense to anyone here either. But it is this idea of long ago when, when Jewish men, they wore big long robes, and when they had to go to a Zumba class or whatever or, or get ready for battle, they would, they would pull it up, pull it around them, and tie it into their belt, and then they were more loose for action. It was a call, a bit like we'd say today, roll up your shirt sleeves and get stuck in, guys. It was a call to action. This is what Peter is doing here. He's calling us to action, and he's saying... Prepare your minds. How? He says, by being sober-minded or self-controlled, some Bibles might say. It's funny the word sober there brings up the idea of drink and sobriety, but one of the hallmarks of someone who drinks too much or perhaps who has a bad drink problem is it's a lack of self-control. Indeed, it's, it's kind of a characteristic of all addictions, isn't it? It's a lack of self-control. But do you know what? That self-control is often rooted in something deeper. It's a lack of hope, isn't it? You can meet a drunk on the square in Galway and get talking to him, and he or she has no hope. So Peter says here, Christian, I encourage you to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1 to, 1 to 4. Listen to this. If then Paul says you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here we go. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life, listen to this, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's that hope again. Why do Peter and Paul want the believer to set their minds fully on the hope? It's because only by setting our minds fully on the hope can we live the life that God now wants us to live in order to give him glory and honor and give us, as Peter said, inexpressible joy. Now, Peter has thought deeply about this assurance, and he's sure of it, as we saw in verse 8. His heart is just abounding with inexpressible joy. And so Peter exhorts the recipients of the letter at the time. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed, and this is the second exhortation, to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, some might be thinking, oh, come on. Why did Peter have to bring obedience into it? He was doing so well for a while. He promised us that this grace is there for it. It's banked. It's in the bank. Why is he talking about obedience? And, and how much obedience? I mean, obedience is hard, isn't it? Well, let's read 15 and 16, and we'll see how obedient. Verse 15, 16 say, But as he called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Wow. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? How do you think you do? You know what? We'll have a look at the text, and we'll see where verse 16 is taken from. Go to Leviticus chapter 11. Verses 41 to 45. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make, for yourselves, det you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy as I am holy. What on earth is that about? I mean, if most of us reading that would think, well, if, is the writer of Leviticus here, is Moses saying that if we don't eat creepy, crawly things, we're okay, we're holy? I mean, if that's the case, we're all right, aren't we? We're all very holy in this room. I don't see anyone in this room regularly eating creepy, crawly things. I don't think that's quite what Moses has in mind, but we do get a fuller picture maybe of holiness if we go to Isaiah 6. So let's shoot forward to Isaiah 6. It gives us a different flavor. I'm not dismissing Leviticus chapter 11 at all, but let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 6. And Dara touched on it earlier. <clears throat> now, 
Now put yourself in Isaiah's shoes, this great prophet of God who'd seen and done so much for God and had been so much, through so much trouble and strife. A man of real character. And this is him writing. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. Strange, isn't it? Well, it's wonderful to get into God's word. It's wonderful to kind of have a better understanding of those verses. I remember reading them for years and just saying, this is just plain strange. What's going on here? What are these seraphim? And why do they have six pairs of wings? Well, God is a God of economy in creation. He created birds with two wings. Why do seraphim have six wings, three pairs? Of course, it's symbolic, but we get the flavor of what's going on here with Isaiah. These seraphim are privileged to be in the presence of God, ministering to him. Imagine ministering to God. They have six pairs of wings. With two, they cover their eyes. Why is that? Because our God is so utterly different, so utterly holy, so utterly other, that even the seraphim, these chosen creatures, have to cover their eyes to stop seeing the full glory, or they could not live in his presence. And they have two wings which cover his feet. Why is that? Well, the feet in Bible, are in the Bible are traditionally kind of, they have the meaning of, they're your creatureness. You're a created being. And they cover their feet, a bit like Moses had to expose his feet at the burning bush to submit, to submit himself to the Lord, to show his earthiness, that he was a created being and not really on the same level as God at all. These seraphim as well cover their feet. It's an act of humble submission. And they sing one to the other above the throne. Holy, 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 they sing, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They don't just sing one holy or two holies. They sing three holies. One of the few places in the Bible where this refrain, or where there's a triple refrain, if not the only place in the Bible, and worthy it is to our God as well. Holy, 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 the seraphim sing. And listen in verse 4. I say is terrified. He says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him. That's just one of the seraphim who called and the house was filled with smoke. Does this remind you of any other time in scripture? Remember when Moses went up the mountain and God did business with him for 40 days? Remember that? And he witnessed the glory of God's presence and God told him and told the people, do not go up on this mountain while my presence is on it or you or your animals will surely die. This God is different. And what happened? The mountain shook, it said, and trembled. And the people trembled. The awesome power and presence of God terrified this great prophet. In verse 5 he says, Woe is me! For I am lost, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, he says. For, pardon me. Woe is me, he said, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my, heaven, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, I think, at that time, suddenly fully understood the holiness of God. And instantly, he realized his own sinfulness, how profane he was, his own sin. It had just been exposed in a second by God's holiness. Lord, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've got a dirty mouth, Lord. I think he understood for the first time it wasn't just his mouth that was dirty, that was unclean, that was profane. It was his heart. Jesus says in, in Mark 7:21, he says, For from within, he said, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, weakness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, come from within and they defile a person. Isaiah cries out, woe is me for I am lost. A person will never understand the depth of their sin. Can never repent of their sin until they see the holiness of God. Peter has seen this holiness as well. Remember when he and his friends were sitting back, having spent all night trying to catch fish to no avail? Remember that? And Jesus appeared and he says, well, have you caught any fish? And they said, no, it's pointless. They're just not biting, Lord. And Jesus told them, cast the net over the side of the boat. And you can imagine these hard, seasoned experienced fishermen who knew the ways of fish and they kind of went, there's no point when fish aren't biting, they aren't biting, they threw over the nets. They pulled in a mighty haul. You would have thought they'd be happy and, and gleeful and, 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 and just giving one another high fives. What does Peter say? He says, depart from me, he said, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Straight away, he saw that this man standing in front of him, Jesus, was not like him. He had authority and mastery over creation itself. He was utterly holy. And Peter understands as well that there's no point in exhorting someone to be obedient, to be holy, unless they first of all have a sure, strong, fast assurance of something which has been given to them, the inheritance. It's the only way they live right lives and lives pleasing to God. And of course, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit is their enabler as well. Because it is this sure hope and grace that fuels our call to holiness and to obedience. Nothing else. What was the point? And we've just read a little bit from Leviticus there. What was the point of all these strange old laws in the Old Testament anyways? Did God have something against eating battered beetles or honey-dipped locusts. I mean, people all over the world still eat insects. There's nothing wrong with them. They're full of protein. Why was he giving directives like this about washings, about foods, about festivals, about ways to worship? What was the point of it all? Did you ever wonder that? One commentator, commentator puts it like this. I think this is very good. He says, what God was trying to impress upon his people was a call to obedience, an obedience that would be enduring, 
an obedience that they struggled with and failed to show at times, but which would nevertheless mark them as a people that were different to the neighboring nations. You see, God wanted this chosen people to be different from all the other neighboring countries and peoples because he had a job for them. He wanted them to reflect his holiness, his character. Not that he had anything against any of these other prohibitions. We can see that in the New Testament when Peter was shown that there's nothing clean or unclean. It's, it's all clean in the eyes of the Lord. Now, a secondary meaning of holy in the scriptures this morning we're going to look at is tied with personal righteousness and purity. Dara mentioned earlier, we're not to wallow in our sin. We are not to wallow in our sin again. And this is what Peter is reminding us when he gives the second exhortation. He says, do not, he says, be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And then he gives a third exhortation. He says, you are to be holy in your conduct. To be holy means that Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. It's a high order, isn't it? I know coming from my former faith, if someone said, hey, there comes a holy guy, we'd have all just thrown ourselves on the ground. We'd be looking around, who's it? who are they talking about? We'd expect a big aura of light to come down the road. If someone said that someone living now who hadn't performed any miracles could be holy, we'd have scoffed and laughed. We had a totally different meaning for holy. And we can see Peter's final exhortation for us this morning in verse 17. He says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, listen to this, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now we realize that people around us, people around the world, constantly misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. And we can imagine the Apostle Paul in a marketplace long ago as well spreading the gospel, sharing the gospel to people, and someone pipes up, maybe a little smart Alex, says, so Paul, if you're saying that we can go on sinning so that we can get grace, shouldn't we keep on sinning more then so that more grace would be given to us and then that would glorify God more? Answer that one, Paul. You know, Christians even can presume on grace at times. We sang Amazing Grace here last week, and I think it explains this verse well. Two of the lines out of Amazing Grace go, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. We have two fears there. We have what we might call a good or proper fear and we have a fear which is not appropriate for Christians, a horrifying, terrifying fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. That's good fear. That's awe and reverence in the presence of a holy God. Respectful reverence. And then you have, and grace my fears relieved. That's things that terrify us. Peter encourages them to conduct themselves with fear, the right type of fear, knowing that only God is their loving father. Not only is he their loving father, but he's also an impartial judge. We're not to be casual or careless in the presence of God when we call on his name, when we pray to him, when we think about him, when we worship him. because all will have to bend the knee one day. Everyone in this room will have to bend the knee. Peter next in verse 18 and 19, he says, conduct themselves with fear as well in regarding to this, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. How can a sinner stand in front of a holy God and live? He or she must be ransomed. God needs to step in and take action. The sinner needs to be bought back from slavery, not with perishable gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. We don't have the time, the abilities, or the resources to ever do it on our own. God had to step in and send down his only son to stand in our place to take our punishment for sin. It's only then that the sinner can be purified and stand before a holy God and live. It's not an external washing. It's not a quick scrub with a face cloth. All the filth within needs to be addressed. It needs to be washed. And the only way that that can be done is new life. Anything that a sinner can offer to try and clean themselves up is, like Isaiah said, filthy rags in front of a righteous God. Isaiah knew about that because if we flick back to Isaiah again, we can see in verses 6 to 7, something remarkable happened. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took from the altar. And he touched my mouth, Isaiah says, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The lips are probably the most sensitive area in the body. And they're also used to show the most intimate and beautiful affection, the kiss. And this is where the seraphim touched Isaiah. Can you imagine the excruciating pain of being touched on the lips by a searing coal taken from the altar of sacrifice. There was pain in the cleansing. Isaiah's lips were sealed, cauterized, purified. In effect, he was branded as being a possession of God, one who could now stand in the holy presence of God and live because his sin was atoned for and his guilt was taken away. Listeners, has God touched your lips? Have you had all your guilt removed? Has the precious blood of Christ purified you? Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For our sake, God, he made him, speaking about God, to be sin, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, do you know how Peter can exhort sinful people to be holy and to be obedient, to be different from the world, from the ways of their forefathers? Is it because they can offer up some good work? Is it because they can try their best? No, it's because, as Paul says, Jesus covers their sin, almost like he puts a robe of righteousness over them. And when they come into God's presence, God sees the righteousness of Christ. As Paul said earlier in Colossians, we are hidden in Christ. Friends, do you, want to, do you want to know why this is certain? Why faith in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is certain? This setting our hope on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's in the next two verses. He was foreknown, for, foreknown 
referring to Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God raised Jesus from the death, from the grave, so that victory was seen to happen over sin. Victory was seen to happen over death. All the promises that God made in his plan of salvation, from Genesis right up to Revelation, this is the climax of the story, Jesus' death and resurrection. The promise to the woman in Genesis 3 that her offspring would crush the serpent's head happened right at the cross at the resurrection. Three days after Jesus was hung on that cross, he rose again, showing that even death couldn't hold him. Sin had no mastery over him. And all who hang on to his tailcoat, so to speak, who are hidden in him, who are clothed with his cloth of righteousness, his robe of righteousness, righteousness we also will make that journey with him. He being our first brother into the very throne room of God, standing in front of a holy and righteous God, in holiness and shall be in fellowship and live with and have our lives live with God and have our lives glorified the great promise that Peter started off in this chapter glorified bodies living in the presence of a holy God forever and ever along with the seraphim singing holy 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 the resurrection is the jewel in the crown of God's salvation story there's no doubt about it and it's because of the resurrection that Christians can have hope. Christians love the resurrection. The world hates it. Because the resurrection has shown that Christ had victory over death. Back to Florence Chadwick to finish off briefly. She tried the second crossing from Catalina to the mainland a while later. And guess what happened? Mist fell again when she was partly on the way over. But she made it this time. And not alone that, she beat the men's record by two hours. And she made it over and afterwards, she made it over because she said to someone afterwards, she says, this time I made it, she says, because I kept reminding myself that the land was there. And that's what we are asked to do in Peter's four ex exhortations today. And that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Do you ever wonder why am I here this morning? We're here to remind ourselves of the hope that is in us. We're here to set our minds, as Paul said, on the things that are above. We started off by singing the praises of God, holy, 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 just like the seraphim in the heavenlies. And now we're opening up the word of God and we're reminding ourselves of the gospel, the great hope that Jesus has planted and God has planted in our hearts. People from all nations, all tribes and all tongues in this, in this room this morning. It could only be by God that we're here this morning. And we are being obedient by being here this morning. We are asked to meet. All believers, in a sense, realize here this morning to finish up that we are exiles. Even though we live in this world, we don't feel entirely at home here. But the hope of the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns fuels us to live through these tough times. And just remember, this is not the reality. We're only here for 70, 80 years. 
Paul finishes up in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says, We don't look to the things seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they'll one day wear away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's hope and keep our hope on things that are eternal, things that are sure. Let's pray. Father God, um, there is so much in this, in this letter of Peter. There is so much encouragement, um, so many challenges. But Lord, above all, we, we see that you are in control. And the hardest thing for us to do at times in our lives is to let you have the reins, let you have the control, Lord. Would you break down this rebelliousness in us at times to try and, and live our own lives as we see fit? It stymies and, 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 and halters. Our ability to be obedient. Our, abil our, our ability, really, Lord, to enjoy you fully. We know this in our hearts, but it's difficult Doubts set in, Lord. And you know, Father, you know that doubts set into our hearts. We have not been fully glorified yet. We will have doubts, but we mustn't despair. By despairing, we're saying that you're not in control. Lord, you're in control. You have set a great inheritance in front of us. And you've asked us now, Believing on that, go and live it out. Father, help us to do this with the help of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Amen.